Wright City, they got real nervous because they knew what I was talking about. And they're like, are you going to start drawing pictures, Pastor? And I said, you bet I am. We're going to play some Pictionary today with this subject. So anyway, no, it's going to be okay. Uh, But uh, we are um, talking about the talk. And I got a question to kind of start off today's conversation. And the question is this. The question is, what is the most important component of intimacy? What is the most important component to intimacy? That could be highly debated, right? We could go through the room and say, well, I think it's this, or I think it's that. I think it's attraction. I think it's how you feel. I think it's about the moment. I think it's about the right person. I mean, we could go through it all. But it's really important because, I mean, intimacy is something, even for us, those who are married, I mean, having good, healthy intimacy is, you know, kind of a goal, something that we we look forward to, something that we hope for, something that we're always trying to figure out. And this subject is even important for anybody who may be single or widowed or divorced, because, I mean, there are certain things we're going to talk about today that I feel like you have to figure out before you can ever even enter into an intimate relationship. And so that's what we're going to kind of unpack and try to figure out today. But if you're just joining us, last week we started this series and we talked about how a hundred years ago, it started with Sigmund Freud. I mean, there was a, there was a revolution of sex. Basically, Sigmund Freud said that, you know, we were being repressed and that we would find true happiness if we could be ourselves and if we could express ourselves. But even he said, yeah, but it's got to have some guardrails on it. It's got to be in the context of marriage. But for, from there, philosophers and, and different kinds of people just kind of took it as far as it could go and went as far as saying, well, no, I don't think we're being repressed. I think we're oppressed. There should be no guardrails. There should be no moral law. We should just let it go. And then we have advancements in technology, things like birth control and the internet and smartphones and and all kinds of different things. And all of a sudden it just, everything became more accessible and it became more accessible and, and there were less consequences. And that's how we end up where we are today, where much of the stuff is, is normalized. And we've, we've taken it pretty far. I mean, we're to the point today in 2023 where gender reassignment and all these different things are, are a thing. And so here we've had a hundred years of sexual liberation and what we've seen statistically, what neuroscientists have found, what psychologists have found is that we are the most sad we've ever been. We're the most depressed we've ever been. We're the most suicidal we've ever been. We're the most anxious we've ever been. So Sigmund Freud and these philosophers, they promised if we would just have a sexual liberation and sexual freedom, we would find true happiness. But we've had a hundred years of, ex- of, of trying that, of exercising that. And what we found is it didn't work. So, okay, so then what is the answer? And for us as, as, as followers of Jesus, we turn to Christ and we say, all right, so maybe there's a context for this. And if God, if God is our creator, and, and sex is not a worldly creation, it's a God creation, let's turn to the creator of this thing and maybe see if there are some guardrails. Maybe see if there's a box that this belongs in. Maybe see if there's a context that this belongs in. And so we dove into the words of Paul. And Paul talked about how the context of sexual activity belonged in a marriage. And when he described marriage, he described it as a, is a highly committed monogamous relationship between a man and a wife. And he said, this is where this belongs in first Corinthians. He says it belongs between a man and a wife. Now, somebody asked me this week now marriage though, isn't that just like a certificate? Isn't marriage just a piece of paper? No, 
Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a wife made before God. It's not just a piece of paper. And it's much more than a promise. It's a covenant in, in, in front of the eyes of God as the witness and in front of our loved ones. It's much, much more than just a piece of paper. It's a covenant that's made. Just like the covenant that God made with us. And so what we took away from what Paul talks about, about where sex belongs, is we said this. Intimacy requires exclusivity. Intimacy requires exclusivity, that it's between a man and a wife in the context of marriage. Now, outside of that, what does that exclusivity look like for you and your spouse? Well, that's for you to decide. For parents, what does exclusivity look like for your kids? I mean, you, you are the one who creates those guardrails for your children until they move out or they're on their own or they're independent. You make that. What does exclusivity look like? Well, you get to decide that. And so that's where we started talking about that. And so then right after that, in the very next chapter, this is what Paul says. We're picking up right where we left off in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says this. He says, so the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. So he's talking about how husbands and wives, they have a duty to one another, right? And I have to say that very carefully, otherwise it comes out as duty. But a duty to one another, right? I'm just seeing if you're awake, all right? Then, this is what he says next. Then he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, this has been a highly, highly debated piece of scripture for a very, very long time. A lot of people debate about this. And a lot of people, they don't even like this verse. Because for a long time, because honestly, a lot of men preach this verse because there's a lot of men preachers and there's still a lot of patriarchy that exists in the church and in the world. A lot of men preachers have translated this and said, so look, there it is. What Paul's saying is boys keep on getting it and girls keep on giving it. And that you don't own your body, you got to have sex. And that's how they take it. And I think that that is the most childish, most just ridiculous translation of what he's saying. Because he's not saying that, that sex is required in a marriage. He's not giving a command that you should, you just, you need to have more sex and your body's not your own and you better give it up. That's how a lot of people have translated this. But I don't think that that's what's going on here at all. Because if you do your homework and you dive into this verse in the Greek, in the original context and language that this was written in, when he says that they have a duty to one another, it goes both ways. And then when he says that you, 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 you have to give your body to the other person, that word body there means not your physical body, but it, it's much more than that. It's your whole self. So what he's saying is that you need to give your whole self to one another, that you can't withhold. You have to give of yourself. You have to open up and give all of yourself to one another. Wives to your husbands and husbands to your wives, you have to be able to open up. And here's the thing. We don't like to talk about this. It's much easier to just have the sex conversation because it's physical. And let's be honest, that's easier for men. But the real thing that's really happening here, what Paul's trying to tell us is that intimacy requires vulnerability. When he says you have to give all of yourself, you have to open up. He's saying that intimacy requires vulnerability. And what's amazing is, is when we talk about 
the body and what the body does and, and, and where the body comes from. And even the idea of, of a man and a wife, a husband and a wife. We can go back all the way to Genesis and we can look up the Hebrew um, ancient scripture and, and dig this up and look at it and find some of the same messages there when Adam and Eve are even created. Because if we go back to Genesis, this is what it says. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, again, what's amazing about this and what this tells us is that when God made the decision to make woman for for Adam, he didn't look at Adam and go, well, geez, I made Adam and I gave him all these body parts and he can't even use them. I'm going to have to make him something. You know, that's not why he made woman. Why did he make woman? He didn't make woman for just physical enjoyment. He didn't make woman as a toy. He looked at man and he saw that man was what? Alone. He said man was alone. And that word man in Hebrew doesn't mean male. It means mankind, which means it's something that's in all of us, no matter what gender that you are. He looked at man and he goes, man, mankind is lonely. I mean, this makes sense because God made us in his image and God made us because he wanted relationship. He made us to have relationship with him. And so it makes sense that when God makes man, he looks at man and goes, wow, they need relationship as well. So I need to make him a suitable helper. I need to make him a partner. And can we just put a pin in there and time out for just a second? Isn't it so true that so many of our sexual experiences... Really what's going on more than just the need for pleasure or desire is that deep down we feel alone. Is that deep down we're just trying to connect. We're just trying to feel valuable. We just we want to be wanted. We want to be needed. We're looking something not just to feel the physical pleasure, but we're looking for something to fill this void in us because all of us have this draw to want to be connected, to not be alone. And when God looked at mankind, what he decided was that mankind was not meant to do life alone. None of us are meant to do life alone. So then it goes on, the story goes, and it goes, So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now twice we've seen that word right there, helper. And again... You get a patriarchal pastor up here, male usually, that says, well, see, that just tells you something right there. That women were just made to be second to men. That they were just made to be helpers. And a lot of them, they turn to this as their context for that. Because it says it right there, pastor. It says they were made as suitable helpers. But this Hebrew word in your Old Testament, it's only found in two places. It's found here in Genesis. And the other place that it's found is in the Psalms. And in the Psalms, the writer of the Psalms uses that same word helper to describe what God was to David. So it talks about King David and it talks about King David's trials and tribulations and challenges. And it talks about how God was a suitable helper to David. Now think about that for just a second. Would we ever say that God is second to David? Would we ever say that that God is just a suitable helper, that he's an assistant to David? Absolutely not. God is the father. God is the king. We would never say that. 
So here's the thing. If you want to use Genesis as your basis to say, well, women are second to men. It's right there in scripture. They're just suitable helpers. I will fight you. Okay. I will physically fight you with the Psalms and bang you over the head and be like, you're, you've lost your mind because I believe in this so much. I, I, I believe that that is a, a misrepresentation of scripture. And so then the story goes on in Genesis and it says this. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then it tells us this. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. So do you see what's happening here? What's happened? The man is put to sleep. The man is put in a vulnerable position. And God opens him up and he takes something out of man and joins it with the female. He puts him in a vulnerable position and he takes something from his body. He takes a part of him and he joins it to the female in order to create her. And then she is brought to Adam. And this is what Adam says. Then the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of me. And then, then it tells us this. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. There's this idea here that the creation of male and female, male was put in a vulnerable position, was opened up and joined something. A part of him was joined with the female. And then it says they became bone of bone, flesh of flesh. They became one. All of a sudden they were, they were united. Not in a physical sense, but in a much deeper sense. And, and really what they would use this for, this story for, it was a, there's a Hebrew word at play. If you ever study Hebrew and be able to look at this in Hebrew, there's a word play going on of something being taken out of somebody, a part of them being taken from them, gifted over to somebody else and joined together. And what it is, it, it creates attachment. That oneness, that one flesh is meant to describe a deep bond. Not just a physical bond like sex, but, but a deep, more intimate bond, an attachment, if you will. Now, here's what's so interesting about that. It's 2023. And guess what? We have scientists who study this thing that's called attachment theory. And attachment theory is the psychological explanation for the emotional bonds and the relationships between people. So we literally now have scientists who all they study is the bonds that people make, the emotional attachment, the relationships that they have between different people. And one of the things we talked about last week, now that we've had a hundred years of sexual liberation, a hundred years of expressing yourself and, and, and re-identifying yourself and, and you deciding what you want to do, what they have found is attachment theorists have found that the, this, these generations that are coming up, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, even millennials, that they are not able to attach to people in a healthy way. That people are more and more likely to get divorced than they've ever gotten divorced. That people are, are having... Are, are, their social skills are, are just becoming less and less and less. And they're not able to bond to people emotionally like they once did. They're not able to attach to somebody in a healthy way like they once did. And they directly correlate this to the amount of sexual expression and confusion that we've had 
over the last hundred years because some of it hasn't been good and a lot of it has created trauma. And that trauma has had an effect on how we attach to one another. And one of the other things that they turn to is what we're, what we're wired through our minds through books and literature and entertainment and screens and just what we see in culture is what we're drawn to. And what they say is that a lot of culture and entertainment, what it's trying to teach us is they're trying to teach us the laws of attraction, right? It's all about how you look. And it's about looking the right way. And it's about being the right thing. And a lot of everything that we're fed as far as materialism and relationships and sexuality, it's all driven by this law of attraction. And if you don't know the law of attraction, I'll explain it to you very easy. When you're attracted to something or attracted to someone, these three chemicals right here are what are released. Dopamine, serotonin, you've probably heard words like this. That's what's released. So when you first meet that person, right, and you get those butterflies in your stomach, right, and you're like, ooh, what's that? That's new, right? And then you say goodbye to each other and you're like, I want to see them again. Like that was exciting. That was different. Then that's what's released. That's dopamine. That's serotonin. That's, that's attraction. And a lot of what we're fed through entertainment and culture and advertising is we're taught to jump for attraction. To, to want this. Because that dopamine and that serotonin, it gives us a feeling of a high. And so many of us chase this. And in relationships, what happens is a lot of us, we, we make a lot of decisions based on attraction. We say things like, it just feels right. I just feel it in my gut. I just, I just think that this is, this is the right person. This is the one. We, we, we're, we're going off of that law of attraction. We're feeling that dopamine. We're feeling that serotonin. And so we make quick decisions, quick things. We even do it when we shop sometimes. When they're like, oh, there's a new this out or there's a new thing. Or look at that car. Oh, oh dopamine rush, serotonin rush. Oh, I got to have it. I got to buy that. I don't need to do that. Sign me up. I want one too. That's what we chase after so often. It's the reason so many of us, how many of us, when we go on a vacation, we feel better on vacation or when we're out at the lake, what do we, we feel happier. Our, our family seems happier. Our marriage, our relationships seems happier, seems better. And so then when we leave, what happens? We get sad again. We go back. It doesn't last very long. And then what do we do? We got to go on vacation again. We got to go out of town again. We need to go back to the lake. We need to do this because what are we chasing? We're chasing that dopamine. We're chasing that serotonin. But here's the thing. It never lasts. These chemicals do not last. And actually, when we become so addicted to them, we can actually, just like we do with caffeine, you know, if you have too much coffee, caffeine loses its effect on your body. It no longer wakes you up. I mean, the first time you had coffee, it, it gave you the you know, you could smell color all of a sudden, right? And you're like, I love this stuff. Well, guess what? If you have too much of it, the effects of caffeine, it doesn't do anything on your body. And the same thing is true of dopamine, serotonin. That's why pornography is so dangerous. That's why so many sexual experiences with so many different partners is dangerous. It's why it's dangerous to live your life always needing the newest and best thing and always needing to upgrade and always needing to buy and always needing to go on vacation. Because you're chasing a literal chemical drug in your body and advertisers know this. And they're telling you to chase after it. 
And what attachment theorists have seen is that this is unhealthy because it always ends up dying. And what happens in your relationship is when your body gets used to these chemicals and you're no longer feeling it anymore, that's when you look at your partner or your spouse and you go, I'm just not feeling it like I used to. You don't make me feel like you used to when we were dating. You don't make me feel like what I used to when we were young. What's your problem? And then you start to second guess. I don't know. Maybe I made the wrong decision. Maybe I'm not, most to, not meant to be with you anymore. Maybe our love is dead. Maybe this, maybe that. And then again, you chase those trips and you chase those vacations and you chase those experiences and those concerts and those things and buying those things to what? Give you that dopamine back. Give you that serotonin. Give you that feeling back. But attachment theorists have said it's a dangerous thing to chase. They say what's even stronger, what creates a higher chance of intimacy, a stronger, healthier bond is actually attachment. But the thing is, is with attachment, what has to happen is that you have to be open. What has to happen in order for healthy attachment to take place is that you have to be vulnerable and you have to be willing to open yourself up. Physically, mentally, emotionally. And that is something that a lot of us are unable to do. And let's be honest, especially men. Because as men, we've been taught that vulnerability is a bad word. Vulnerability is not something we do. I'm not going to share my thoughts. I'm not going to share my feelings. I'm not going to talk to anybody about what's going on. I'm not going to admit that I'm afraid or I'm sad. I'm just angry all the time. (laughs) That's it, right? But see, that, 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 that stops us. It blocks us from being able to have healthy, intimate relationships. Because we're unable to be vulnerable. But again, if we go back to Adam and Eve, vulnerability is what made them who they were. Vulnerability is what made them strong. When we go back to Genesis, it says Adam and his, Adam and his wife were both naked. And they felt no shame. And again, that word naked, it doesn't just mean physically naked. If we look at the Hebrew, it means that they were fully exposed to one another. Not just physically, but emotionally and mentally. They were completely exposed and open to one another. And the beautiful thing that happened was that they felt no shame. Brene Brown she, uh, she has a TED Talk that she did after six years of studying attachment theory. She, she did a, a TED Talk that now has over 100 million views on YouTube. It's one of the most popular TED Talks they've ever done. You can go watch it. And she, she did a six-year study that talked about this connection, this connection that we're all looking for, an intimacy that we're looking for, this openness and this strong attachment, this bond that we're all looking for. And she said the number one thing that blocks intimacy and closeness is shame. Because shame is something we've all felt. Shame is something we feel where we feel unlovable, unworthy, undesirable. We look at ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, and we think, who would ever want to be with me? Who would ever want to be my friend? Who would ever want to get to know me? Who would ever want me physically? Who would ever want to be in a relationship with me? Some of us, we felt that because of trauma that we've experienced in our past and we haven't unpacked or dealt with. Some of us feel that because of experiences we've had. 
experiences that go all the way back to when we were a child or a teenager. Some of us felt that just because of our low self-esteem and low confidence. And no matter how many improvements we do to ourselves, we still feel shame. We still feel undesirable. And Brene Brown talks about this is the number one factor that blocks us from being intimate. Now, what's amazing about things like TED Talks and and worldly conversations about this is they go, you have this huge problem of shame and it's blocking us from relationships. And a hundred million people in the world will watch it and they'll be like, I agree, this is really bad. We're all feeling it, aren't we? And then I, as a Christian and as a pastor, look at that and go, that's why you need God. Because this is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. There was a time where they were fully exposed and fully naked in front of each other and they felt no shame. But then sin enters the world. And what happened when sin entered the world is then, all of a sudden it says that the eyes of both them were opened. And then they realized they were naked. Then they realized. And what happened was they covered up. They sewed fig leaves together. And they made coverings for themselves. To hide. And not only did they hide from one another, but it says next, it says, Also, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, and he was walking in the garden, and in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Why? Because they had felt that shame. Because they felt undesirable to one another, and they felt undesirable to even their Father in heaven. So they hid. And we've been hiding ever since. And we've become very good at it. And now attachment theorists, this is the statistics that they show. 50 to 60% of people deal with insecure attachment disorder. And that means because so many people deal with insecure attachment, four out of five relationships suffer from insecure attachment disorder. That's most of our marriages. It's most of our relationships. That if not both of us, one of us have experienced trauma in our life that have made us feel unlovable, And undeserving. And because of that, we're constantly chasing this romanticized idea of being good enough and being loved enough. And we're chasing these feelings. We're chasing this dopamine and this serotonin in order to to feel whole. But attachment theorists are saying it's it's just not working. And so many, so many of these relationships are ending in divorce or ending in a catastrophe or there's an affair because somebody's chasing dopamine or serotonin or there's an addiction to pornography. And there's all kinds of things that are going on because we just don't have a secure attachment to one another. And secure attachment theory, they say that each one of us, we fall into one of four different areas. So I'm going to draw two accesses here. And this is accepted. And this is unaccepted. And then there's known. And there's unknown. And all of us are one of four areas, okay? The healthiest one or the best one is here. And this is confident. And confidence is when I can be fully known and be fully accepted. I can be fully exposed. I can be fully vulnerable. I can 100% be myself and still be confident because I'm accepted and I'm loved and I, I feel valued. And then over here, over here we have avoidant. And an avo- av- avoidant person, what happened is, is they started off known. They trusted someone. 
They trusted someone and they let somebody in. But what happened was, is some kind of trauma took place. Psychologists literally call it an injury. An emotional injury took place. And now, now they feel unaccepted. Now they don't trust people. Now they kind of hold people off. This is, this is what happens when you go through a divorce. Or when you watch your parents go through a divorce. Or there's some type of affair situation. Or somebody walks out on you. Maybe a mentor, a coach, a friend all of a sudden betrays you. And you thought they would never leave you. They thought you, they would be with you forever. And then they, they just left. They disappeared. That creates an avoidant person. And then down here, we have a hesitant person. And a hesitant person is somebody who wants to be accepted, but they feel unaccepted. They, feel, they don't feel any value. They don't feel worthy of any love or desire. And so what they decide to do to play it safe is to remain unknown. This is the type of the person that says, you know what, I'm just going to hide in the background. I'm just going to, I'm just going to be in the back and I'm not going to say anything and I'm not going to raise my hand and everybody's talking about it. And even though I have an opinion, I'm not going to open my mouth. I'm I'm just going to keep, stay back here and be quiet. And I'm not going to comment on it and I'm not going to get any of it because I don't want to get hurt. And I don't feel like my words or my opinion really has any value. So I'm just going to remain hesitant. I'm just going to stay in the back. And then over in this quadrant, we have... Resistant. And this, this is an interesting person. Because this is somebody who wants to be accepted by everybody. And because they want to be accepted by everybody, they've chosen to primarily remain unknown. And a person like this, this is a weird chameleon type of a person. Because they look confident on the outside. But the only reason they look confident on the outside is because they're so good at wearing a mask and remaining unknown. This is a type of person that has a beautiful social media. I mean, their gram and Facebook and Twitter and TikTok is on point because they are good at entertaining people and putting something out there that will make them accepted. They can see the trends and they can see the things. And these type of people, they are so good at networking. Everybody knows this person and everybody loves this person. But if you ask them, who's your best friend? They probably don't even have one. Probably the last time they had an intimate relationship, uh, openness with somebody, an intimate conversation that doesn't even exist. This is the type of person that asks you all the time, how are you doing? And you open up to them, but they, you ask them the same question. Well, how are you doing? And they say, fine, even though they may not be. Because they're choosing to remain unknown because they want to be accepted. Now, all of these three here are some sort of secure Attachment disorder. And so many of us don't live here. But this, this is the goal. And attachment theorists say, you know what? It's, it's very likely with learning some skills and learning to be vulnerable and open that a hesitant person can end up being a confident person. But it's just as likely that an avoidant person who's been hurt chooses to hide themselves And become a resistant person. To where they look good, they look healthy, and they look successful on the outside. But it's only because they've chosen to remain unknown. So look at that for a minute. And you tell me where you think you might land.
Because what's interesting for me is as a pastor and as a friend, when I drew this on my whiteboard in my office, I think I could go through and peg you pretty well. I think I could go through and probably show where a lot of our church is. I could go through and find the avoidant people and the hesitant people and the resistant people. Because resistant and avoidant people usually don't want to be in a small group. Because they don't want to be open and they don't want to be vulnerable. And they don't want to talk about how they feel. Hesitant people will sign up for a small group, but they'll just be quiet. And let all those confident people talk. And they'll listen really, really well, right? But these are the type of people who even sometimes get nervous about going to church. These are the type of people like, I, I just watch online. Because they don't want to have contact with people. Now, resistant people, these people are great church attenders. But again, that next layer of intimacy and vulnerability, they just won't enter into it. Because they want to remain unknown. So which one are you? The thing is, is that when Brene Brown talks about this, she says we have to learn to get past the shame. We have to learn to get past the trauma that we faced in our past. We have to learn to, to somehow become confident in who we are so that we can move from hesitant to resistant, to a confident. And, and a resistant person has to be able to let go of always being accepted and learn to make themselves known and realize that even if they end up being unaccepted, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with them, that they, that they still have some sort of value to share with society, with culture, with mankind. So how do, we, how do we do this? I think three things are ultimately required in order to get past this, in order to have intimacy. And again, this is far beyond just intimacy in a marriage or in a romantic relationship. I'm talking about even just to have good friends. I'm talking about just even to have a good, healthy church that doesn't just come for an hour on Sundays and listen to me, but is able to connect to one another together and be the body of Christ and to actually be a church family. This is what is needed in order to experience that closeness from not just be a spectator, to feel like you're doing life together with other people. And all of us need that. Mankind was not meant to do life alone but it takes something from you and the first thing that it takes is you guessed it vulnerability right it takes vulnerability and here's the thing nobody can do that for you you have to decide yourself to be vulnerable and that the the picture that that creates for me what i always see when i see that word is I, i see this i see a seesaw you remember seesaws i don't even know do they still even have seesaws anymore i barely see them anymore but how many of you guys like the seesaw? Raise your hand. Okay, see, it's like 50-50. And you know why? Because every single one of us have been dropped on our butt on a seesaw, right? Because that's the game with the seesaw. Is You're this person, and look at this kid. He's like, you're dead, right? So he's like, your turn. Because how many of us have been in this position, and we're like, wee, this is fun. And then that person below gets the devil eyes. And they're like, I'm going to drop you. And they jump up really high, and you're but your pelvis got shattered. How many of us broke our tailbones on the playground because that ding-dong kid, his name was always Kyle. He jumped off, he jumped off of the seesaw or he jumped too high and your pelvis just came smashing. And you couldn't go even and sit back in class because your butt, and you're like, that's it. I'm never trusting anybody on the seesaw again. And that's us in life. 
So many of us have been on the seesaw. We've been like, yay, life is happy. Life is good. We're in love. We're close. You'll never leave me. And this is great. And then they dropped you on your tail. And you thought, that's it. I'm never doing this again. I'm never going to trust anyone again. You even do this with church. Some of you have had a bad church experience or a bad pastor. And the reason you're coming back very slowly, you're like, all right, this is a church for people who don't like church. But let me tell you something. I've got stories and experiences where I trusted a church and I jumped in and I was a part of it, but I got dropped on my butt. And that's what makes me hesitant. That's what makes me resistant. That's what makes, that's what makes me avoidant. But here's the thing. You will always stay here until you learn to jump back on the seesaw and be vulnerable. The second thing that's needed is acceptance. We all have to experience acceptance. I, I, I told you last month we, we, we did a series on anxiety. And then I was very open about my anxiety. It took me, I've been anxious and, and depressed for 35 years of my life. And I never talked about it. And I didn't even, my wife and I next week are celebrating 13 years of marriage. Yep. And it took me up until year 10 to even talk to her about this. It it took a Netflix show that dealt with the issue of suicide for me to finally open up and say, I'm that character. I'm that person. I'm that person who has those sad thoughts and those anxious thoughts and who's just woken up sad for no reason sometimes. I'm that person. And you know what? It took me so long. It took me 10 years, nearly a decade of marriage and a good healthy relationship with a good partner to finally be vulnerable enough with how I felt emotionally, physically, and mentally. And you know what my wife did? My wife accepted me. My wife loved me to the point where I can have a bad day. She can ask me, how are you doing today? And I can text her and say, you know, I'm just having one of those days where I'm sad for no reason. And she doesn't say, well, that's stupid. That's silly. Knock it off. Suck it up. She goes, I'm sorry. Is there anything I can do to help you feel better? See, Brene Brown, if we go back to her TED Talk, she said this. She said, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. And I lived in secrecy in silence for a long time throughout my life. But Brene Brown, she says this, but if you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. And although you may not understand what somebody else is feeling emotionally or physically or mentally, if you douse it with empathy and say like, look, I don't understand how you feel. I can't put myself in your shoes, but I could, I can show you empathy and I can accept you and let you know that you are loved for who you are and there is nothing broken inside of you. That person learns that it's safe to be vulnerable, that it's safe to open up to them. And let me tell you something. After 13 years of marriage, my wife, my wife and I are more close and intimate with one another than ever because I learned to be vulnerable about something I was keeping secret and she has learned to accept me for who I am and she douses me with empathy every time in my weak moments. That's what a beautiful relationship looks like. And the last thing is this, is commitment. Commitment. Because a clarity, a clarity of commitment is what is crucial 
to intimacy. This is why Paul talks about the context of marriage being where these sexual experiences belong. There has to be a clarity of commitment because Brene Brown talks about this. She says, if there's not a clarity of commitment, what happens is there's insecurity. We feel insecure. I could put it like this. Here's the thing. When you say to someone, I'm ready to spend the night with you, but I'm not ready to make Christmas plans with you, that creates insecurity. When you say to somebody, hey, I'm ready to spend the night with you, but I don't want to share bank accounts with you. That creates insecurity. For those of you who are divorced or single parents, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I'm ready to spend the night with you, but I do not want to be your stepdaddy or your stepmama. And I don't want anything to do with your kids. Does that not create insecurity? Because what that person is saying is like, look, I want your body, but I only want a part of you. I don't want your baggage. I don't want your emotional. I don't want your mental. I don't even know what you're, I don't even want to know what you're thinking. I just want your body because that's all I want from you. And I just want to take advantage of that for my own pleasure. That creates insecurity in a person. It's not right. Now, married couples, you are not exempt from this because I tell married couples all this all the time. The D word is never an option to put on the table. If you're in the middle of a fight and you're in the middle of an agreement and you're in the middle of sharing your emotions and your thoughts and your feelings and all of a sudden somebody slams the D word on the table and says, well, maybe we should get a divorce. Well, maybe we shouldn't even be together. What you have just done is you have used your leverage and power to leave the relationship to be able to put the person that you're in a fight with in an insecure position. Because what do they do? All of a sudden, they become afraid. Oh, no. So you might leave me? Well, shoot, then I'll back off. Well, then I'll take my words back. Well, I didn't mean it. And that is manipulative. That will not do anything healthy for your relationship. All that will do is put you in an avoidant, hesitant, or maybe even resistant position where your spouse chooses to be unknown by you because they don't feel like it's safe to share their thoughts and feelings and emotions with you because you will throw it out that maybe they'll just leave. And they don't want that. The D word does not belong in a relationship. Don't you ever, ever, ever in a fight use the word divorce because it's wrong. And I'm very clear on that. Here's the thing. Everything that we are talking about It perfectly models the relationship that Christ came to have with us. Your father in heaven looked down at us. And even though we were broken and we didn't deserve it, he decided to be vulnerable with us. He sent himself down in human form and he came among us and he said, Hey, I want you to know I accept you. I love you. I have an endless amount of empathy and grace and peace for you. And and I want a relationship with you. And I want you to know how committed I am to this. I will put my body on the line and I will literally die for you. So that you could know that you don't have to hide from me. So that you could know how loved you are. So you can stop feeling that shame inside of you. And know that you are not undesirable. You are loved by the Father God who created you. 
And here's the thing. This, if, if you're single, if you are a young person, if you are a teenager, I wish I would have learned this so much sooner than I ever did. Because you have this unique advantage that so many of us who have been married for a time, we have to learn this and almost work in reverse. But the truth is, is that you have to know who you are to God before you can ever give yourself to someone else. You can never give yourself to someone else without knowing who you are in Christ. Because until you know who you are in Christ, until you can be fully known by him and know that you are accepted of a child of God, you will never be able to give yourself in a healthy way to somebody else. My wife, she tells a story when we were dating. Uh, we, we, we were in college together. We met the very first weekend of college. And uh, we met at freshman orientation. And um, Darren actually liked her as much as I did. But anyway, we won't tell that story. Um, but <laughs> she came with a boyfriend and it was long distance. And Darren and I were just bent on breaking them up and stuff. You know, Facebook was brand new. Like it literally came out when we started. And she had uh, prom pictures. And we would take her prom pictures of her and her boyfriend. And we would Photoshop Darren on all the pictures and then repost them. Anyway, it's the whole thing. But anyway, we, <laughs> we were friends for three years. All of us. We were in the same friend group for three years. And my wife wanted nothing to do with me. And rightfully so. Because I was a serial dater. Okay? I mean, I had white knight syndrome out the yin-yang. And I mean, I just, I, I, had, I had issues of my own. I had brokenness of my own. And I was so good at being whoever I needed to be, no matter where I was. If I needed to be the life of the party, I could be the life of the party. If I, could be the ser- if I needed to be the serious person, I could be the serious person. And so I was a serial dater. And I mean, I had a terrible reputation on campus of just always being with someone else or dating someone else and stuff. So my wife had zero interest in me. Honestly, there was something wrong with me. I mean, there was, I, I found my, my confidence in whether I was in a relationship with somebody, whether I was approved by somebody. That's where I found my confidence at. But then one summer, I had an encounter with God that changed me. And I learned how to be fully myself and known to God and know who I was in God and know that I was accepted by him. And I became a different kind of confident. Not a fake confident, a real type of confident. And then... My wife and I, we ended up in North Dakota at the same wedding uh, with our group of friends. And my, my wife noticed something different in me. Like she, she could notably just notice it in my demeanor and how I talked. I just wasn't the same person anymore. And many people kind of caught on to this. And that's where I fully understood myself. And, and it was at that point that here's what happened. My wife came at me. I mean, she knew that I had liked her for three years or I was attracted to her. But then all of a sudden, my wife came at me. And let me tell you something. She came at me hard. Let me tell you what she did. All of a sudden, it was spring break. Darren and I were driving back home. And she, she calls me. And you know what she goes? She goes, hey, I was just watching this commercial. Uh, WWE's coming to town. Who's your favorite wrestler? And I was like, girl, buy me dinner first. Like, Whoa. She's like, I like Kane. I was like, oh, you're a dark girl. All right. No. But then we started to date. We started to date. And I remember it was like the third date. I did something and she looked at me and she said, you're such a weirdo. And again, typical, typical old Michael would, you know, try to fight that or resist that or whatever. But I just looked at her and just naturally said, yes, I am. Yes, I am. I am a weirdo. I have. I have fully accepted that I am a weirdo. 
And you know what? It was that night when I said, she always tells that story about when I said that. It's such a stupid story. But it was that night she said she called her mom and told her, this is the man I'm going to marry. Because in that moment where she threw out what would be an insult to most people, I, I fully knew who I was in God. And it didn't really matter if she called me or thought of me as a weirdo. That's fine because I'm a child of God. And it was that night she knew that I was going to be her husband. Here's the thing. There, there is a power of security in Jesus that creates the capacity for you to risk vulnerability with others. And so many of us, we have fake confidence and we're hiding because we don't want people to really, truly know us because we feel shame. But here's the thing. You will never know true intimacy until you are able to be vulnerable because of your confidence of who you are in Christ. And that is my prayer for you. And that is my talk for you. Because relationships and intimacy is so much more than the physical. It's spiritual. It's about opening yourself up with one another. And sharing yourself that creates that bond, that creates that true intimacy. But you cannot experience that without dealing with your own personal shame and insecurity. And to get past that, you have to know who you are to Christ. And let me tell you something. He loves you. He loves you. And he thinks the world of you. And he doesn't look at anything you've done in the past, anything you've experienced. He doesn't look at any trauma that you faced and look at you and say, you are undesirable. You are not good enough. He looks at you and says, you are my special child. You are exactly who I created you to be. And I wish, I wish you could learn to love yourself as much as I love you. Because you are meant for so much more. And I have learned to experience that in my life. And I want that for every single one of you. So that you can know who you are in Christ. Can I pray for you this morning? Father God. As we continue this conversation today. God, it opens up a whole basket of emotions. It opens up a whole lot of feelings. Because some of us today, we feel undesirable and we feel unloved. We feel unaccepted. And we're looking for that intimacy. We're looking to not feel alone. God, would you do some healing in my heart today? Will you do some healing in me Pastor's right. I've been avoidant. I've been hesitant. I've been resistant. I have been so good at either hiding in the background or putting a mask on and being a pretender or being a chameleon and trying to fit in. And it's because of what's happened to me and it's because of my experiences. And it's because when I look in the mirror, I don't see desirable. I see unlovable. But God, this morning, I hear you. God, this morning, I hear you. That I am a child of God, that I am loved. So God, would you do what you've done so many times in me? Would you repair the brokenness in me? Would you help me to be vulnerable? God, for others of us, would you help us to be accepting of others? When people share their thoughts and their feelings, would you help me to show empathy? 
Would you help us all to love each other enough to not create insecurity in one another's life, but to create that good, healthy attachment, that confidence that we're all looking for, God. God, will you do that again in me, Lord? We hand this over to you. We're leaning on you this morning because what the world has told us hasn't got us to where we want to be. Hasn't got us to who we really want to be, who we know we really can be. And we believe this morning that you can make our life better and make us better at life. So will you do that in us this morning, Lord? In your name we pray. Amen.